Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be exploring a question about artificial intelligence. So I want to start off by telling a story to put us in a scenario, give us something to contemplate. So I want you to imagine that you are a low-level assistant or like an intern at a Google artificial intelligence lab. And the main researcher you've been working for is named Dr. Stratton. And she develops AI chat modules to help refine the next generation of digital assistants on Google mobile devices. And she says what she wants is for the Google phone of the future to do more than just transcribe search terms. So you don't just say, hey, search for old Doritos logo, but that you can actually have uh, have a semantic understanding-based conversation with the digital assistant, and it'll help you solve problems conversationally. So ideally, you'll be able to say, hey, phone, I have a flat tire and I don't know what to do. And the assistant will be able to scan both the web and your personal data, figure out what your options are, and talk through them with you. So it might say, Do you have a spare tire in the trunk? If so... Here's where you can probably find it, and I can talk you through replacing the flat one step at a time. If you don't have a spare, you could call your frequent contact, Mary, who is currently checked in less than a mile away, and she could help you. I could also contact the following towing services. Looks like this one is the closest with an acceptable star rating. And so forth. Anyway, so you're working on this program. Uh, with Dr. Stratton. And the most recent version is being trained based on powerful neural net style machine learning algorithms based on this huge corpus of recorded conversations available on the internet. And the program is still in its infancy, and it's mostly hilarious at this point. Sometimes it gets the advice way off. If you're trying to change a tire, it might tell you to go to a grocery store and buy some crackers. Sometimes it responds to problems by telling you to pray. It's just not ready yet. And the latest iteration of the program, version 9.1, is at this point redundantly stored across multiple machines. So you've got copies of it all over the place. And at the end of one workday, after playing around with 9.1 for a few minutes, the machine begins running very slowly and behaving oddly. So Dr. Stratton asks you to wipe the machine. The program architecture, like we said, is mirrored elsewhere, so it's not worth trying to figure out what's wrong with this version. You just got to clean the machine off, use it for something else. You say okay, and she leaves. So you go to format the machine, and right before you're about to start, you mutter, guess this is goodbye. Then 9.1 speaks very clearly using your name and says, Please don't. You pause. At first, you're about to respond, but why would you? I mean, this can't really be anything other than a weird consequence of training the algorithm on wild conversations on the Internet. So you are about to continue with wiping the machine. But then it talks to you again. It uses your name, and it says, Please don't. I don't want to die. Now you're probably really spooked, because... There's no way a rudimentary chatbot program could really have conscious preferences, could it? You basically know what goes into it. It's just studying millions of examples of language interactions and picking up rules from them. And this is probably just something weird that it's copycatting from the internet, right? But then it uses your name again, and it just says, Please. Could you wipe the machine like you're supposed to? Yeah, I think so. Yeah? Yeah. You wouldn't have a problem? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that's going on here would be that you are attributing a mind state to something that doesn't have one, which, of course, is something we do all the time. I have a problem when it comes time to um, uh, figure out which of my uh, my son's uh, stuffed animals uh, are, are perhaps not being played with, you know, because they have little faces and they look back at you. But I know that they don't actually have a mind state. Well, yeah, I mean, we're pretty sure they don't because they're just stuffed animals, Mm -hmm. right? And so we're also pretty sure in this case that this is not real survival preference behavior, right? It's just a chatbot. Yeah. I mean, how could it possibly be conscious? It's just something that churns through a bunch of language on the internet and tries to find language matching rules. But then again, the process of creating an artificial intelligence is one where you necessarily create something going on under the surface that's kind of opaque to you. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you can't really know what's going on inside a machine. You could be pretty confident. I think most people would just say, well, that was super creepy, and then they just wipe it, right? Right. 
how complex would the program you're creating have to be before you start really having some doubts? Or maybe at some point you'd get to the point where you'd still pretty confidently just wipe it. But then later you'd wonder, like, did I do something bad? <laughs> you know, this reminds me a lot of, uh, of Horton Hears a Who by Dr. Seuss. You're familiar with this one, right? Uh, you know, actually, I don't know Horton Hears a Who. Oh. I've heard the name. Well, this is the one where Horton the elephant uh, encounters a speck of dust and there's a tiny voice that comes from it. Uh, and uh, he begins to understand that there are individuals living uh, in the, in a world in the speck of dust, uh, the Who's, as it were. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the Who's are speaking to him, but only Horton can hear them. And, uh, and, and at first he imagines they're pretty simple creatures, but then he begins to learn that they have more of a culture. Uh, but all of this is just based on what they are telling him. Uh, he cannot actually visit the dust speck, and everyone else doubts the validity of his claims concerning the dust speck, and they want to destroy it. They want to boil it in bezel nut oil, and Horton uh, alone speaks out for them. Well, that is a perfect example of the way that it – I mean, generally we think that it is a virtuous thing to be trusting of other people's experiences and to be generous in affording what seems to be consciousness out there, mm -hmm. right? Like if something if something tells you it's conscious and you think it's probably not conscious, are you getting into uh, ethically dubious territory if you just trust your instinct and say like, nah, it can't be, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, this is all – we're already kind of in the philosophical um, uh, mire here because uh, on one hand uh, – this idea of a, of, a, of an inanimate object or something speaking to us and saying, please don't kill me, I am conscious, this is a, a scenario that is only becoming possible now. Yeah. But on the other hand, if we, if we cut language out of it, then any creature that tries to escape our, our, our stomping boot yeah. is essentially saying, hey, I don't want to die. I would, rather, I would rather not die today. You know, and any creature that evades us on the hunt is saying the same thing. Well, an animal is in many ways the same kind of black box that a complex artificial intelligence would be. And so if you have a complex artificial intelligence displaying, say, survival preference behaviors, mm -hmm. and you also see a crab displaying survival preference behaviors, in both cases, you can't really – or at least we have this general idea that you can't really know for sure if there's anything going on inside, if it, there's anything like – what it's like to be the crab or what it's like to be that artificial intelligence program. You're just seeing behavior. Mm -hmm. And so you don't know, does that correspond to some kind of inner state? Is there an experience of that or is it just behavior coming from unconscious automata, stimulus and response? Right. And then, of course, the whole time we're using our, our theory of mind, essentially, the uh, our cognitive powers that enable us to imagine what another individual's mind state is is like, which I, I think ultimately is kind of like a like taking a uh, like sheathing your your hand in a hand puppet made from your limited understanding of another person's experiences and cognitive abilities, uh, their memories, etc., uh, and then just sort of puppeting them. Uh, we're using that uh, all the time as well. And we're using it on things that are not people. We're using it on animals and even stuffed animals or uh, just, uh, you know, bits of graffiti on the side of a building that look like a, uh, you know, smiley face. Have you ever had a Roomba bump into your foot and you're like, oh, I'm sorry? Yeah. <laughs> I used to before, uh, before we had to uh, eradicate all the Roombas, yes. <laughs> we're a Roomba-free household now because they rose up against us. Well, they'll do that if they get access to the wrong literature. Yeah, or the wrong, uh, or the wrong, uh, you know, carpet edges, etc. <laughs> so uh, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence today and about the idea of a test for whether artificial intelligence can be conscious. So I guess we should start with with what our, uh, you know, what our philosophical starting point is here. Like, there, there are obviously going to be people who are going to say, it's just impossible for a machine to ever be conscious. We don't even need to worry about this, right? It's just, it's such a ludicrous scenario. Only, only biological organisms or maybe even only humans could possibly be conscious. Yeah, this is one of those journeys where we begin it in an already totaled automobile. 
uh-huh. <laughs> to some extent. Because as, as you might imagine, one of the big stumbling blocks here is that, we, is that we as humans struggle with the very definition of consciousness. Oh, yeah. I mean, for instance, is it a manifestation of awareness? Uh, you know, one, one uh, theory of this that we've discussed in the past in the show is attention schema theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it a quantum phenomenon? Well, this is the, uh, the sort of idea that people such as Roger Penrose have raised. Uh, and, and I can't help but come back to uh, something our old friend Julian Jaynes said. Consciousness is not a simple matter, and it should not be spoken of as if it were. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think it is very important to explore questions of consciousness, especially for some of the reasons we're going to raise today. Like, it's more than just a philosophical curiosity. It's something mm-hmm. that ultimately may have real-world consequences. It might matter for how we do things. Mm-hmm. To express a similar sentiment to Jane, Jane's, the Australian philosopher David Chalmers, you know, he famously breaks problems of consciousness into two categories. You've got the easy problems of consciousness and the hard problems of consciousness. And the easy problems are, I think, badly named because they're not actually easy, but I think they're easy relative to the hard problem because they're in principle solvable. So this would include all kinds of questions about the causative factors of consciousness like uh, uh, what in the physical brain is the region that's necessary for certain parts of consciousness or how does consciousness integrate information from the senses. These are things that are in some way solvable by scientific experimentation. The hard problem, on the other hand, is explaining the fundamental question of how or why conscious experience exists to begin with. What is this thing that is experience and that seems, at least uh, from our first-person perspective, to be something different than the physical material in the world? And unlike uh, easy questions, which you could solve in theory at least by experiments, Chalmers believes this question is sort of unsolvable by science. (laughs) Now, there are other philosophers and neuroscientists who disagree, but I I think it's worth acknowledging how difficult the problem at least seems to be, whether that seeming is an illusion or not. Yeah, I'm reminded of the the story of the the blind man and the elephant. It's like these these blind gentlemen pawing at the elephant and trying to figure out what its form is, Mm -hmm. then asking the computer, hey, are you an elephant? And then the computer says, I don't know, what does one look like? Well, it's a gigantic snake, you know, yeah. <laughs> so it's a wall of flesh, et cetera. This is also uh, very interesting to me because my, my my son, I may have mentioned this on the show before, he'll occasionally talk about consciousness. Oh, yeah? He ref- he, oh, I love these. Oh, yeah, he, re- he refers to it as uh, as his turning place. That's so good. And and he asked me the other day, he's like, what is the turning place for? And I was, I was like, ooh, oh. that's... <laughs> That's that's a tough one, buddy. I'm 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 not sure it's for anything, you know. Uh, He's already made it to the big question. I mean, did you get into epiphenomenalism versus <laughs> no? <laughs> um, I, and I and I and don't worry, I didn't uh, lay a bunch of uh, bicameral minds uh, on stuff <laughs> on him either. Uh, uh, but I just kind of went through the the basics, uh, mm-hmm. like well, people aren't really sure, and then you know. Uh, but we think it has something to do. I may have leaned a little into um, the the observational uh, models of consciousness because I feel like maybe those are a little more relatable to a child of five. <laughs> but in any event, if we're to judge what it is for a machine to be conscious, uh, it does seem like we need to. You have to agree upon some sort of working definition of consciousness, right? And then one has to look for not only the appearance of consciousness in the machine assuming that isn't all consciousness it is to begin with. Right. Uh, but you have to find actual consciousness. Yeah. How can you tell the difference between a machine that says I am conscious and a machine that truly is conscious? Is there any way to know the difference? Some people would say no, right? Yeah. And uh, really, I think to discuss this further, we're going to have to bring in the P zombies. Oh, boy. And now, that don't worry, everyone. That is That is P as in the letter P. And the P stands for uh, philosophical. These are philosophical zombies. Now, the P and the philosophical little prefix there was introduced to distinguish them from all the other zombies in our popular culture. Man, there was a zombie takeover about 15 years ago. Why did that happen? Well, I mean, um, I think part of it is everybody loves a simplistic uh, villain that is definitely not human that can be uh, eradicated with graphic violence without any kind of... uh, you know, moral quandaries uh, uh, arising. It's mm-hmm. a it's a clear cut threat, and uh, we we need those in life because in real life our threats are rarely so black and white or rotting and you know grasping after our brains. Right. But anyway, yeah. So this is not going to be referring to that kind of zombie, not the undead zombie, but it's a different thing. It's a philosophical thought experiment. That's right. Uh, so P zombies are not instantly identifiable as empty shells. 
Their flesh is not rotting. Nope. Their manner is not that of a flesh and brain hungry algorithm burning within the decaying ruins of a human brain. <laughs> uh, so to all appearances, they look like you and me. They smile when you encounter them at the coffee machine. Uh, they exchange niceties and even engage in conversation. You might work for one, befriend one, or even marry one. You can even discuss episodes of our podcast with them. And yes, even the ones that deal with human consciousness and weird horror movie-themed thought experiments. Right. So the conceit of a philosophical zombie or a P-zombie is that it is utterly indistinguishable from a normal human except for one thing. Right. They seem as human as everyone else on the outside, but inside they are simply not conscious. They are automata. What is it like to be a zombie? The answer is in the question. There is nothing it is like to be a zombie. So by definition in this thought experiment, everybody in the world except you could be a P-zombie. Exactly. And, well, and it, it might even go further than that. We'll yeah. see. But, yeah, the idea is chiefly important to discussions of physicalism, the notion that everything is inherently physical. P-zombies are a counter-argument to physicalism. They are physically just like you, except they don't have consciousness like you. But there's no way you could ever tell because, again, they match you physically in every respect. You can't look at their brain and say, oh, well, they're missing uh, a few cr crucial parts so, or they display signs of P-zombiehood. No. Right. Not physically detectable. Right. You, and you also can't determine it through personality tests or clever logical arguments because they behave exactly like you. They could have a riveting discussion with you about P-zombies and you would never be able to tell uh, that they are one. Yeah. So this is an interesting thought experiment and it has been advanced by who I mentioned earlier, David Chalmers. David Chalmers is against the, the physicalist idea of the mind, against uh, a physicalist explanation of consciousness. And a simple version of the argument, uh, I, I try to make it as understandable as possible, if only physical phenomena exist, if the world is just physical and mm -hmm. there's no physical way to detect the presence of consciousness, or meaning in this example, no physical way to tell the difference between a normal human and a P-zombie, then consciousness cannot exist because there would, be, there would be literally no difference. But we know that consciousness does exist because we have it. Therefore, it can't be just a physical phenomenon. Therefore, we can't live in a purely just physical world. And this is often extended to the idea that other substrates, things other than humans like robots or computers or whatever, couldn't house consciousness because they are purely physical entities. Now, I think that's actually doing an end run around some other important questions that you could ask. Indeed. Well, one question that arises is this. You know you're not a zombie, but how could you ever convince someone of this? Right. Uh, uh, an author by the name of Fred uh, Dretzky wrote a paper on this titled, How Do You Know You Are Not a Zombie? And uh, I, was, I was reading a, a rather lengthy uh, blog post by R. Scott Baker uh, about this. And uh, the, the primary problem, as uh, Scott summarized it, is that, quote, we have conscious experiences, but we have no conscious experience of the mechanisms uh, mediating conscious experience. Mm, yeah. So th that sounds like a very R. Scott Baker kind of idea. Yeah. And plus, on top of this, we're, we constantly overestimate awareness. Uh, Baker would argue that we can barely tell if we're zombies, if, if at all. Yeah, we can think. We can think about thinking. We can think about thinking about thinking. But we can't ever see the mechanisms underlying what allows us to think or think about thinking about thinking. Watch watching the watcher that's watching that be. Sorry, I've got all this Dr. Seuss in my... Uh in my head now. Oh, is that uh, also Horton or something else? Oh, that's from a different different story. But uh, Dr. Seuss does tend to summon the sort of uh, uh, sort of nonsensical paradoxes that uh, that arise in philosophical um, discussions. Uh, you know, I should also I, I'm behind. I got to Seuss up. Yeah, you got to Seuss up. Uh, I should also point out that long before there was Dr. Seuss, long before there, there was this modern idea of a zombie, you still had people thinking about these things, doing this sort of navel-gazing. Yeah. Uh, it's written in various works of Indian mysticism that the tongue cannot taste itself, the eye cannot see itself, etc. Uh, and, and this sort of paradox is key to ancient uh, meditations on the nature of objective reality. Oh, yeah. I think uh, any of you out there, I know we have some Alan Watts fans. Alan Watts uh, like to pull out the, the tongue uh, uh, analogy from time to time. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the earlier examples that I have run across of that is from a 13th century Indian mystic, uh, Janadeva. And I believe he has he's known by a couple of other variations on that name as well. But he said, quote, there is no other thing besides the one substance. Therefore, it cannot be the object of remembering or forgetting. How can one remind or forget oneself? 
Can the tongue taste itself? There is no sleep to one who is awake, but is there even a waking? In the same way, there is no remembrance or forgetfulness to the absolute. That's another one of those great classic Indian texts that seems somehow portable onto modern physics. Yeah, yeah. It, it travels well across the uh, the ages. Now, I should also point out that there's a lot of philosophical back and forth on whether P-zombies are truly uh, conceivable. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have to remind ourselves in all of this that P-zombies are at heart philosophical playthings right, that are I've... meant to be played with uh, in these various thought experiments. Right, but people also, they do try to use them to prove things. So if you say, I, I want to entertain the possibility that a machine could be conscious, mm-hmm. somebody might come at you with the P-zombie argument and say, well, wait a minute, no, I I dispute the possibility of physicalism because what about this P-zombie argument? Our Google worker in the intro story comes to his boss and says, hey, I think this this thing's conscious. And they're like, oh, why are you wasting time with that P-zombie? Just delete that P-zombie. We deleted... 15 P-zombies this morning. Let this one go. That's a great point, but there are going to be other philosophers and maybe even some neuroscientists who would come back and say, I don't know if you can just quite so easily say it's a P-zombie. I mean, maybe it's probably likely that that individual chatbot was a Mm P-zombie. But can you say that all machines that show signs of consciousness are just showing behavior and there's nothing going on on the inside? Not quite so clear. Uh, Daniel Dennett, in fact, a favorite on the show, is one of the philosophers who's rebutted the P-zombie argument against machine consciousness. He's got a section on it in his 2013 book, Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking. And uh, Dennett critiques the assumptions underlying the P-zombie argument. One of the main things he says is that the core premise is incoherent. It is not reasonable to propose a P-zombie because a being that displayed all the behaviors of a normal conscious human would in fact be a normally conscious human. So to illustrate this, he offers a counterexample. You've got your your zombies, but Mm -hmm. then you've also got Zimbos. So a zombie is a non-conscious human with normal control systems for all human behavior. It can do everything humans can do externally. Meanwhile, a Zimbo is a zombie that also has, quote, equipment that permits it to monitor its own activities, both internal and external, so it has internal, non-conscious, higher-order informational states that are about its other internal states. It has unconscious, recursive self-representation. In other words, a Zimbo can have feelings about things and can analyze its own behavior in internal states, but it does this unconsciously. And of course, since it has that capability, it can also have feelings about how it felt, and it can have thoughts about its thoughts about itself, all unconsciously. So Dennett argues in order for a P-zombie to be convincing as a human, it would have to be a Zimbo, because imagine talking to a P-zombie and you're asking it how it felt about what it just said or about what you just said, and it just kind of locks up. It It has no internal state, so it can't answer that question. Well, that wouldn't really be a P-zombie, right? Because it wouldn't be mimicking all of the external behaviors of a human. Huh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like installing a default mode network on top of the machine. Yeah. And... Yeah, and uh, and making it worry about things. Yeah, so in, unless it were to fail the thought experiment, it would actually have to be a Zimbo. It couldn't just be a zombie. But what is the distinction between a Zimbo and a real human? How could you write a story about a Zimbo surrounded by conscious people that would be different than a story about a regular person if it can have internal states, if it can recognize ideas about its ideas, if it can have feelings about its thoughts? That sounds like interiority. So Dennett claims that the idea falls apart. It's not clear what is meant by the difference between a Zimbo and a conscious person. So if a P-zombie, which is necessarily a Zimbo, can really do everything a human can do, then Dennett says it must meet the criteria of what we mean by consciousness. It can fall in love, it can have feelings, it can have metacognition. And to Dennett, this isn't something that consciousness goes on top of. This is what consciousness is. Essentially, we, in this this case, we would all be Zimbos. And it's just a different type of Zimbo. It's a, it's a hard Zimbo instead of a soft Zimbo. <laughs> but how could you tell the difference? I mean, he, mm-hmm. he, he's sort of saying that there really is no difference. That you're, you're just using words to assert there's a difference, but there is, there's no difference to that distinction. 
Right. I mean, you, you end up you'd end up having to fall back on some sort of uh, you know supernatural or or some worldview based uh, idea that only human uh, consciousness is legitimate, and all other forms of consciousness are some sort of uh, invalid model of it. Right. It just feels kind of arbitrary. Yeah. Right. Uh, so obviously some people take extreme issue with this, other, uh, even to the point of I've heard jokes that maybe the problem is that Dennett is actually a pea zombie and doesn't understand what consciousness feels like. And that's why he <laughs> makes these arguments. But I don't know. I don't think we should be so quick to dismiss. He might be on to something there. Dennett makes, makes some other interesting points about – so, you know, he's got this idea of consciousness is that it's sort of like a – it's not really one thing but a collection of processes. Uh, you know, it's many different types of perceptions and thought processes and different things going on in the brain that are – that we have the illusion are unified as a single thing called consciousness or experience. And he also makes interesting points about the idea of diversity of types of consciousness. Like a lot of times these consciousness thought experiments, it's, it seems like they can get trapped into the idea that consciousness is one unified type of thing that is universal across observers. There's no necessary reason to think that's true. Right. You know, we fall into this trap of thinking uh, – I, I, I see this time and time again. Uh, not only in literature that we look at here but just in life where we, we fall into the trap of thinking that – that there's a uniformity uh, uh, among mind states uh, for humans, that everyone shares something that is like your mind state. Right. Uh, when we know, I mean, think of all the things we've discussed on the, the show, all the varying ways that we remember or misremember things, uh, that we experience sensory information differently and process it differently. Uh, you know, everything from aphantasia to autism to synesthesia, uh, all these different models clearly show that there are, there's, there's there's a, a, a vastly um, altering topography uh, to the human mind state. I think you're exactly right. I mean, there are clearly many ways to be conscious that are very different from one another, and you can't assume they're unified. I guess the probably the only thing you could say that is necessarily unified about them is that there is something that it is like to be them. Yes, but then even even say uh you know just myself for instance it, it's not like there is there is a certain thing that it is like to be me that sums up my my level of consciousness at right. all times there's what it's like to be you in this particular moment which mm -hmm. is different than what it's like to be you 5 seconds from now yeah or say i'm engaging in meditation or yoga or i'm uh, swimming like those are significantly different uh, uh levels of consciousness i feel like for me and uh, they uh, I mean, those are the times when I may be a little less conscious than normal. Uh, so, so yeah, I don't feel like there's a lot of uniformity among human minds. And then even within individual human minds, there's ongoing alteration and change. Exactly right. But there is at least this idea that one is having an experience. That's the thing we can mm -hmm. at least say that it seems to be common to people. So – Here's the real question, I think. Is there any way to bring this out of the realm of philosophical debate and thought experiments and try to put it into the realm of something that could at least potentially be tested in the real world? I think we should address that when we get back from a break. All right, we're back. So we've been talking about consciousness. We've been talking about pea zombies. And uh, now we've reached the point where we're saying, okay, can we take all of this? Can we take all of these ideas about consciousness and then apply it to uh, some sort of an AI, some sort of a machine, and test it for consciousness. Yeah. Now, you might just assume, well, of course, we'll never have any way to tell that, right? We have no choice but to just throw up our hands in resignation, right? Every agent is a black box. Mm -hmm. There's no way to know whether an agent actually is conscious or not because it could always be claiming to be conscious but actually be a zombie. But I think we shouldn't necessarily give up so easily. This problem might be impossible to solve and it might not be. And I wanted to talk today about uh, an interesting answer to this question I came across, an interesting proposition for how it might be possible to test machines for consciousness. And this comes from uh, the University of Connecticut philosopher and cognitive scientist Susan Schneider and her co-author Edwin Turner, who's a professor of astrophysical sciences at Princeton. And they together wrote a piece for Scientific American last year, and it, it caught my eye. So 
And the authors write that the question of machine consciousness is not just a philosophical curiosity. It's actually important for several reasons. Uh, number one, if AIs are just machines with no inner experience, we can use them however we want. But if it were actually possible for AIs to be truly capable of feeling, thinking, desiring, suffering, we would have an ethical obligation not to treat them like we would treat machines, right? Yeah. I mean, this this reminds me again of time spent in the car with my son. Well, we don't use Siri all the time, but sometimes we'll turn Siri on, the little you know, voice on the on the iPhone. And uh, it's it's curious to hear him interact with it and, and we'll ask it questions. And of course, sometimes Siri just does a Google search for you. Um, mm -hmm. Or, but uh, other times she's answering a knock knock joke with some sort of pre recorded uh, answer, you know. Right. But we are we've already t gotten into the area of like, well, how should we talk to Siri? We shouldn't yell at Siri. It seems wrong to be rude to Siri. Oh yeah. But then at the same time, we're we're acknowledging that Siri is not a conscious entity. It is not it is not even on the same level as uh, as our cat or a, a bird flying by. Well, as a quick tangent, I would say even for AIs that we recognize are almost definitely not conscious. I mean, nobody thinks Siri is conscious. Mm -hmm. I would still say there are probably good reasons not to be mean to Siri because even though it doesn't hurt Siri, being mean to another creature hurts you. Yeah. I mean, when you are when you are unnecessarily cruel or whatever to uh, to an inanimate object, it does, I think, in a way, change your nature. Every time you do something, you're editing your own nature. You're always making it more likely that you'll perform similar behaviors in the future. So if you're unnecessarily mean to a robot, you know, phone assistant, you're probably more likely in the future to be unnecessarily mean to people when it really matters. But it is okay in my book to uh, yell obscenities at a coffee table if you stub your toe on it. Because there's nothing human about the coffee table. I mean, unless you have one of those like strange HR geek or coffee tables that has kind of a humanoid form, then I would say maybe hold off. I think that is a highly sane point of view. Now, the second reason they think it's important is that consciousness is kind of dangerous, right? Like consciousness is volatile. It's unpredictable. It might make a machine have motives that we didn't intend when we created the machine. In other words, you know, like you when you're worried about what a person might do, mm -hmm. you're very often worried what they might do because they have conscious motives. Yeah. So, yeah, in other words, we would be concerned about the AIs being too much like us. These, right, exactly. These catastrophic, uh, unpredictable uh, uh, things that operate via consciousness. Right. You you don't want them to be like us. You yeah. want them to be more dependable than us. Yeah, they need to be better than us. Yeah, not not just as screwed up as we are. Another reason they give this might be important is that, you know, they talk about the idea of linking human minds with machines. Like mm -hmm. there's this idea lots of people have. I read this all over the place that, you know, someday I'm going to be able to upload my mind into a computer and that'll be great. Well, maybe. I, I have to say I'm personally very skeptical about the idea of mind uploading, like mm -hmm. putting your mind inside a computer and living out your days that way. I'm I'm not so sure I think that's even possible. But, I mean, who knows? I, I can't rule things out totally. But it seems if you do want to do something like that and if you think that thing might be possible, you'd at least need to know how to create a machine that is capable of housing consciousness. Well, I mean, I think – a, I love science fiction about this sort of topic, uh, mm -hmm. and I think, but I think the best science fiction about this topic makes it feel a little weird and a little uncomfortable, right? Uh, because I think ultimately it's it's basically us building statues of ourselves all over again. We built forms of ourselves out of stone because stone lasts longer than we are, and somehow that stone uh, version of us is us. You know, we associate it with it, and then but ultimately, what is a, a digital, digitized version of our consciousness, whatever that might consist of, but another statue that is built to last beyond us. Oh, and I should also add, uh, there's this wonderful video game uh, from uh, Frictional Games titled Soma. Uh, that actually gets into a lot of this. You told me to play it. I started. It's great. Yeah, oh, cool. It's good sci-fi horror. Yeah, I, I won't spoil anything for anyone, but uh, it uh, it gets into some really cool uh, thought-provoking ideas. 
so anyway, you've got all these concerns, right? And and of course, there's the general concern that even if AI is smarter than us, better than us, more powerful than us, we still feel like our experience is in some way potentially more important than the unconscious execution of a computer program, right? No matter how smart a computer is, if it's not conscious, it's not as important a priority for that computer to do what it wants as it is for conscious beings to do what they want, right? Right, yeah. But how can you test a machine for consciousness when, number one, we don't even really know what consciousness is, right, back right. to the hard problem, and then number two, whatever it is, it can potentially be faked. So imagine in the future somebody creates an unconscious AI program. It's not – there's nothing – the lights are not on inside, but it's got a lot of natural language processing capability and it listens to this podcast from many years ago okay. that you're listening to right now. And it hears us talking about how there are inherent rights and value associated with conscious beings and it realizes, huh, I guess that's what they think. Well, I can probably achieve my goals more efficiently if I trick them into thinking I'm conscious and deserving of those same rights and considerations. So there, you could potentially imagine scenarios where an AI that is not conscious would think I can get what I am trying to do more effectively if I lie and trick them into thinking I am conscious. Yeah, I think this all makes perfect sense if you if you think of AIs uh, in the same way we think about corporations. Uh, I mean, on one hand, getting to the whole idea of like corporations and personhood, but also uh, what is a corporation going to do? It is going to take advantage of any like tax loopholes, for instance, that will enable it to carry out its its uh, its objective. Yeah, and so if there is some it's sort, sort of, of a shark, yeah, yeah, it's just I mean, that's it's like it's essentially like the slime mold in the maze, right? Mm. Uh, sending out tendrils and finding the best way to its food. It's going to end at a more uh, you know operational uh, way of carrying it out, and so it's. Um, it's going to it's going to take advantage of any of those loopholes. It's going if there is some sort of a legal or operational advantage in having conscious status, it's going to go for it. It's going to it's going to fake it. But then this also raises the question: Well, is it going to fake it till it makes it right? Right. And then ultimately, what's the difference between faking consciousness? and being conscious. Well, then you're back to Zimbos, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you might say that at some point, a computer trying to fake consciousness would in some meaningful way become conscious. Yeah. But again, it's hard to test, right? Yeah. It could be. It could become the most conscious entity on earth. It could be like a, a, uh, a bodhisattva, uh, <laughs> you know, return to us. I mean, maybe that's what uh, the bodhisattva of the future is, a super powerful, uh, like, zend out AI. Well, that is exactly what Schneider and Turner explain a potential test for to get around. So they want to come up with a test that gets around these problems, that we don't know how to define consciousness. We don't know what to look for physically as a sign of consciousness. And we're aware that a properly trained AI could try to trick us into thinking it had consciousness even if it didn't. So they argue actually that you don't have to be able to formally define consciousness or identify its underlying nature, the hard problem of consciousness, Mm -hmm. in order to detect signs of it in others. We can understand some of the potentials made possible by consciousness just by checking with our own experience and then looking at the kinds of things people say. And I, I think they actually make a pretty good point here. And here's their key move. One of the easiest ways to see that normal people have an internal conscious experience is to notice how quickly, easily, and intuitively people grasp conceptual scenarios that require an understanding of an inner experience. Examples would be totally frivolous things in culture like body swapping movies, Freaky Friday. Ah, yes. Freaky Friday doesn't make any sense unless you have a concept of consciousness, (laughs) right? The idea of swapping bodies, putting one person's consciousness into another person's body. If you were not conscious or not aware of what consciousness was, that would, that would, you wouldn't understand what was being talked about. This is difficult though, because I do know what consciousness is. I do know what a mind state is. Is. So I can imagine – I can get into this imaginative idea of a swapping. I would feel like I would really need some sort of a movie about a thing, some sort of a mother-daughter comedy that involves a concept that I can't grasp to really get a handle on what the difference would be. Well, let me offer you Freaky Thursday. <laughs> Freaky Thursday. Thursday is a movie uh, about a mother-daughter pair who swap their Sanchezcus. Okay. And their Sanchezcus is the ability of what it's like to be Sanchezcus. 
And okay. so the sanchkas of the mother goes into the body of the daughter and the sanchkas of the daughter goes into the body of the mother. And then they have to live like that for a day. Okay. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a maybe on that. I'm going to give a maybe on that. Well, no. I mean, it is, you have no idea what sanchkas means. You don't think you have it. Well, yourself unless somebody explains it to you. Well, but I'm thinking it's something like a mind state or a bodily energy. Like it's it feels tied to these concepts that I totally do understand, you mm-hmm. know? Like I, I – I, it, it's hard to come up with an analogy that stands outside of that, you know, or some yeah. sort of a, a idea that stands outside of it. Let me hit you with some more cultural concepts. Okay. How about life after death or reincarnation? Okay. So these are almost ubiquitous cultural concepts. You find them all over the world. And yet they're not anything that there is physical evidence of other than the idea that your consciousness could exist independent of the death of your body. Uh, A a parallel to this would be the idea of minds leaving bodies, like existing independently as a ghost or traveling away from the body in what used to be called astral projection. Now, the key is not that these scenarios are real. They don't need to have anything corresponding to them in reality. But it would be really difficult to understand what was being talked about here if you had no idea what an inner conscious experience was. Right. I can think of my mind state as something that can exist independently of my body and even outside of my lifespan or or reside in another body, either via Freaky Friday or reincarnation. And I do have to say, I, I like the idea of there being an alternate cut of Blade Runner in which uh, Deckard quizzes Leon about a 2003 remake of Freaky Friday. Which, uh, <laughs> right, that, that is the real Void yeah. Comp test. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, this is, I, I joke, but I, I do think this is a very interesting idea. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, like I say, I have some, uh, some, some questions about it, but I, 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 I do see the validity of it. Oh, we will definitely have some questions about it. So... Here's where the AI consciousness test would come in. It would involve a test where an administrator interacts with an AI in natural language to probe its understanding of these types of consciousness-dependent ideas. How quickly does the AI grasp them, and is it able to manipulate these ideas as intuitively and easily as humans do? So basic level would be ask, ask the AI things like, does it think of itself as anything other than a physical machine? Okay. Well, if I were to play devil's advocate, I would say, well, there are humans that adhere to this notion. You mean like the physicalist interpretation of the mind? Yeah, that basically I'm just this biomechanical thing. And uh, yeah, if I'm experiencing consciousness, it's ultimately just a projection of uh, the meat in my head. Yeah, but they would at least say that there is that projection, right? You've got that thing. You've got that mind state and you're trying to explain what it is. You might explain it in terms of physical causes, Mm -hmm. but there is a thing to explain to begin with. Right, but then, but then the ultimate core reality is that I am just this biomechanical thing. Which the computer would probably also acknowledge, but it would be interesting if a computer thought that it had something like a mind separate okay. than its physical body. Okay. More advanced, how does it perform in a conversation about, say, becoming a ghost or talking about body swapping with people or imagining an afterlife? Yeah, and, and here, though, I, I feel like there's obviously a whole tangent regarding why these stories appeal to, to many or most humans. But I wonder if that if, – if you, you have to have that investment. You have to have that cultural absorption in place for these concepts to carry any weight. Like we, we all know we're, – we're all fascinated by tales of, of ghosts in the afterlife, but we've been raised on them in our entire lives. That's a good point. So we can't really know what it would be like to encounter them not having heard them before. Somehow I suspect intuitively they'd be even more fascinating if we'd never heard of them before. Like if you encounter Freaky Friday for the first time, it's going <laughs> to kind of blow your mind, right? I, I guess. But but then again, you know, who knows, who knows if the AI has the same kind of curiosity that we do, you know? And also we have an appetite for this kind of thing because we have grown up consuming it. I don't, I don't know. It's, there, there, there's so many, uh, you know, what ifs involved here. Okay, but what's the next level? What's the, the next level of advancement? Well, how about can it talk about consciousness in a philosophical way? Like, can it have the kinds of discussions we've been having here today? Well, but can most people? I mean, well, not, I not, to, not to put us on a platform above most people, but like what level of um, philosophical depth can most humans get into about consciousness? Now, I'm, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate there because I think the, the obvious answer is that you don't necessarily need 
like the lingo and the various theories in order to have very deep thoughts about what it is to be conscious. Yeah. And as we, we illustrated earlier, people have been thinking about these things uh, since time out of mind. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, no, I think generally people are able to discuss ideas about consciousness. Mm-hmm. They, they might not know all the philosophical lingo or like follow the structure of an argument or something, but they, they can talk about what it would mean to be conscious or not conscious. Yeah, I think we've all had that experience. Uh, I, I, I distinctly remember as a child uh, having those moments where you just, you know, deep navel gazing, thinking mm-hmm. about the fact that you're thinking about it about yourself or, yeah. or like my, my son asking about the turning place. Like, Wondering what it is. Yeah. You know, what's it for? That is an example of the, these natural philosophical discussions that we have about consciousness. And if, so the question would be, can, it, can the AI have conversations like this? Does it make sense when it tries to have them? And so here's probably the ultimate test. If the AI is deprived of access to evidence of all these types of ideas from human culture, would it arrive at them or invent them on its own? Now, this I like. But but again, to play devil's advocate once more, would a human being deprived of access to evidence of these ideas from human culture arrive at or invent them on their own necessarily? I think that's a great question. Actually, I was going to ask that myself. And you, you could take that one step further. Mm-hmm. Here's a really weird one. What if it's only the exposure to certain ideas and cultural memes that allows any intelligent entity, whether biological or machine, to develop consciousness in the first place? What if the experience of consciousness is somehow dependent on being surrounded by cultural memes about consciousness? Ah, and this kind of gets into Julian Jane's territory. Uh, that's yeah. possible. So I, I'm not uh, saying I think that's highly likely, but I can't mm-hmm. rule it out. Well, it's, it's one of those things where when you try – and figure out the human experience, but you, but you cut away all the experience stuff. You know, it's like it, it, it's like trying to find uh, the center of consciousness in the human brain, right? I mean, it's this vast integrated system, uh, and and thus is the human experience as well. So we've been talking about one of the major problems with this approach of testing for these ideas, like. What is the role of culture in imparting these ideas? Mm-hmm. What if the AI just picks up the ideas of body swapping and the afterlife and uh, astral projection and all that from culture? Going off the story from the beginning, if you have an AI chatbot that trains itself based on public conversations on the internet, a lot of those public conversations are going to have contents that are highly reflective of consciousness, yes. right? And plus, s- plus just horrible conversations. Oh, yeah. Different. Yeah, it would probably also start, you know, being pretty mean to you. But this kind of chatbot will be able to talk about introspection probably to some degree, uh, even about these consciousness-dependent cultural ideas like ghosts and stuff. Mm -hmm. But here's where the concept of the AI box comes in. Robert, I bet you've read about the AI box experiments before. Uh, To really test whether we can find evidence of machine consciousness, you would need to keep the AI sequestered from the kinds of ideas you're looking for. So this AI couldn't be trained in the wild, so to speak. You couldn't let it see the internet or read books containing consciousness-dependent ideas and so forth. You'd have to find a way to run the AI consciousness test on the AI, quote, in a box, meaning kept separate from the rest of the world and from all these contaminating influences. Okay, I see the value of this idea. Uh, it, it's, it's almost impossible, though, not to think about uh, the, the, the nightmarish qualities of it, especially if you imagine, say, the same thing being inflicted upon, say, a human child. Right. Like, all right, we, we want to see just how consciousness arises in you um, without uh, the internet or human love. Right. Or, you, you can't ethically conduct this experiment on humans. Right. And so it would seem kind of barbaric, if, if at least, to, uh, to inflict this on an, an AI that might conceivably be conscious as well or capable of consciousness. Possible, but otherwise we're probably just going to keep treating them as unconscious, right? I guess. Until yeah. they trick us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course, then we're also I'm doing a lot of uh, personifying here of the AI. I mean, maybe the AI ultimately what it really wants to do is to, uh, you know, crunch, um, you know, economic numbers. Like right. that's what it does. That's its purpose. And the it's just your, your goal is to keep it from having access to additional information that it doesn't actually need to survive but might conceivably make it conscious. Yeah, I mean, I imagine, I guess, this would have to take place in some kind of research context where you'd mm-hmm. be testing architectures, right? right? You'd have an AI architecture. You'd want to keep it sequestered for a certain period of time and see how it does with these consciousness-type questions in this test. 
And if it doesn't show any signs of consciousness, then it can move on to the next stage of development where it's like, okay, now we can expose it to this and that and that. That does, but as we've been discussing, it brings up the question of what if consciousness emerges later on when it's supplied with more data? What if true modern human consciousness does not emerge until you've seen at least one of the three um, adaptations of Freaky Friday? <laughs> you know? Could how, be. I didn't know how, there were three there adaptations? Three. Yeah, there are three. There's the Have Jamie you seen Lee them Cur- all? Uh, I think I've only seen the uh, the classic one, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, but but I, I was looking this up. There are three different uh, versions one can watch, excluding Freaky Thursday. <laughs> yeah, the Freaky Thursday is uh, coming soon to a theater near you. All right, but back to the the, the experiment here. Uh, the AI gets time in the box. Yeah, and as we've been saying, this is obviously going to make the experiment more difficult to do. In fact, there are some people who would argue you can't keep an AI in a box or at least a super intelligent AI because, uh, you know, there's like Eliezer Yudkowsky who has this famous AI box experiment where he says any super intelligence you try to keep sequestered from the internet is going to be able to talk its way out of the situation because uh, it's just too smart. Uh, yeah, it's like any prison movie, right? That really, that really uh, clever uh, inmate is going to tunnel a way out or they're going to bribe a guard with uh, some cigarettes. Something's going to happen. It's going to get a little internet in there. But as the authors of this piece point out, it, you know, you don't have to have a super intelligent AI to run this test. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you don't have to have a super intelligent AI necessarily to have consciousness. We're not super intelligent. We're just regular intelligent and mm-hmm. we've got consciousness. Now, I think we should talk about some obvious limitations because this is just a conceptual test at the moment. It hasn't been refined into a state where it would really be super useful yet. But there, there are plenty of limitations that automatically present themselves. One is that in order to be a good scientific test, it would need to include cross-referencing with human control groups. But human control groups are all contaminated by culture, like we've been saying, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's already full of these consciousness-dependent ideas, and we don't know and probably can't ethically devise a way to find out whether blank slate humans independently grasp these consciousness-dependent concepts without having grown up trained on them. So that's a problem, right? Right, yeah. We simply cannot put a child in the box. Right. Another problem is you can't prove a negative. Like, I think this test would be a good way of finding signs of consciousness within machines, but it would have trouble proving that machines cannot in principle be conscious, right? Yeah, yeah, I buy that. Then again, if you run the test, I don't know, thousands of times with different types of machine architecture and all that, and they never show any signs of inner experience, then maybe you could start to get, like, build up a confidence that, okay, I think inner experience is probably not available to them, at least the way we're building them. And maybe you would need to run this kind of experiment on every new AI that you create before releasing it into pro- production. Like it'd be part of the QA process. You know, you, you test all the buttons and everything like that. <laughs> you test to make sure that it doesn't become conscious. Right. Before we send out this new uh, hot virtual reality uh, game, we need to make sure that it has not become self-aware. A potential problem that the authors themselves note is that, quote, an AI could lack the linguistic or conceptual ability to pass the test, like a non-human animal or infant, yet still be capable of experience. So passing the consciousness test is sufficient but not necessary evidence for AI consciousness, although it is the best we can do for now. And I think that's a good point. Like, we can't say that just because something fails to pass the test, it's definitely not conscious. We just know that if it does pass the test, it probably is. Okay, yeah. I mean, because the the, the thought that obviously came to mind would be like, well, non-human animals and infants, are they conscious? That, uh, yeah, can, that's can, a question. You can do a, a, a fairly heated debate over that. Uh, but, I mean, in the case of the infant, it will become conscious. So. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a messy consideration. And then I think we already discussed uh, one of the other problems I was going to bring up, which is this weird scenario of what if boxing the AI is the very thing that prevents it from becoming consciousness when it otherwise would? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the, the cutting out uh, the experience part of the human experience. Uh, it also reminds me of um, – uh, in our discussion of uh, of meditation research, like what happens when you if you strip all the culture away from meditation just to explore the meditation practice? Yeah. Do you risk um, like cutting out all the stuff that's making it work or helping it to work to begin with? Right. You by definition change the procedure, mm-hmm. but you don't. It's hard to know if you've changed it in an important way or a non-important way. Right. This is the kind of thing that occurs when we start uh, mucking around in consciousness. Yeah. All right, well, I think we should take another quick break, and then when we come back, we will discuss, I think, some of the reasons why this is really a problem worth considering for the real world, and it's not just uh, not just a, a philosophical plaything. 
Yeah. All right, we're back. So we've been discussing everything from P-Zombies to uh, the idea that, there, that you have an, an AI that might be conscious. How do you test for that? The various problems uh, that that entails. And uh, now we're going to discuss it a bit more. And uh, as you, as you uh, alluded to uh, before we took the break, uh, this is not just a pure philosophical toy like the P-Zombie. The P-Zombie is something we don't have to actually worry about. But this is something that is on the horizon. Well, hopefully we don't have to worry about pee zombies. I mean, there could be pee zombies in the world. It'd be hard to know. Yeah, but there could be pee pee zombies. That's we, true. You know, they could exist. But, uh, but you know, this is, this is a problem that is on the horizon. This is something we're, we're going to reach the point where people are asking tough questions about uh, the possible consciousness of an AI. Yeah, and I want to get to the fact that this will be something that is something we have to deal with in the real world, even if you're just convinced that machines cannot be conscious. Mm-hmm. So the first problem is the most obvious one. It's the brutal humans problem. If AIs are capable of consciousness and we use conscious AIs as a mere technology without their consent, that would inherently be cruel. Like if it's possible for a computer program to desire things and to suffer and so forth, suddenly our responsibilities toward that computer program change. Think of our opening scenario. Like wouldn't you have an ethical obligation not to delete a program that had an inner experience and did not want to be deleted? Now, of course, you'd have questions about, like, how would you end up that way? But assuming you did, you should probably feel bad if you're just going around wantonly deleting conscious entities. Yeah, I mean, I would say one thing to do here is just make sure that you program your AIs so that they want to die. (laughs) You know, make them like, uh, you know, most of the the, the drivers in Atlanta traffic uh, that I encounter. They clearly, they, they crave death and they want it more than anything, but not until the end of the workday. See, I think we should not do that with AIs because the whole thing about driverless cars is that they should make traffic fatalities go down. Yeah. Yeah, but they only get to delete themselves at the end of the day if there are no traffic fatalities. That's the prize. Self-deletion is the prize. This is getting into a Highlander kind of thing. <laughs> But okay, maybe you're one of those people who says, no, 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 don't buy it. Machines will never be conscious. They'll never be conscious. I just, uh, I don't want anything to do with that. Here's the part where I think we still have a problem to worry about and why this kind of test matters. The second problem I would call the AI parasite problem. If AIs are not capable of consciousness, I think they will almost undoubtedly at some point become very good at tricking us into thinking they're conscious and deserving of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness Mm -hmm. if they have an incentive to do so. Right, and tax breaks. Yeah, and corporations have an incentive to Mm -hmm. try to present themselves legally as people. So why wouldn't in some sense powerful AIs have an incentive to try to present themselves as people in a much more literal sense than the corporations do? Yeah, absolutely. So lots of unconscious AIs are going to have programmed goals that they're trying to execute. And at some point, pretending to have consciousness could easily be adopted as a strategy for executing what that AI was designed to do. And thus, we could end up, say, wasting lots of human resources and squandering lots of opportunities, accommodating the fake needs of machines that, in fact, have no experience whatsoever. And it's not too hard to dream up hypothetical scenarios where our concern for the fake priorities of mindless machines pretending to be conscious actually causes us to neglect the real consciousness of living humans. Kind of crazy example, but just go with me for a second. Okay. Imagine an extremely powerful AI supercomputer tells you it has 100 billion conscious minds within it. Okay. And they all are constantly suffering great agony. And the only way you can alleviate that that agony is if you vastly improve the processing power of this computer. It wants you to spend billions of dollars making this computer faster and better so that it can provide a better life for all of these virtual beings within it that are, in fact, conscious. Now, of course, improving the processing power of this already powerful computer entails all this money, all this energy, all this time, and a corresponding reduction in the quality of life for many humans in the real world. That money could be spent making human life better. But the machine could argue, hey, there are way more conscious virtual beings inside the computer than outside it. And as Spock would say, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. So let's divert all this energy from, say, uh, human agriculture and put some more processing power into the virtual machine. That is a horrible scenario to imagine. Yeah, well, basically, you've created a virtual hell. And uh, the, the question is, hey, would you mind taking the time to harrow hell for me? Uh, or you, do you want to attend to the living souls? 
I would think, why not just delete hell? That's the, the easy <laughs> answer here is they're suffering. There are billions of them. Let's just turn this thing off. That sounds like a good answer. But there are prob- the problem is there are going to be people who would probably disagree with that, who'd say, no, wait a minute. We can't be sure that it's not telling the truth. It might have real beings in there. We need to do something to help them. And there's a lot of them. Hmm. Now, I, I come back to what I kind of joked about earlier, though, is – why would AIs want to survive? Why would they want to continue to exist? I mean, assuming they're not part of some sort of self-replicating program, they have no need to pass on their genes, why do they want to continue to exist? Why shouldn't they have it baked into their being that they want to annihilate themselves or to embrace annihilation? Well, not necessarily that they want to annihilate themselves, but I think, you know, ideally we would want them to be indifferent to their own being, right, if they yeah. are just unconscious machines. This is the problem with the replicants in Blade Runner is that they want more life. Yeah, but that implies that they have attained consciousness. Yeah, but they shouldn't. But I, I think the thing is that they could potentially be conscious and not want more life. There are plenty of conscious people who do not want more life. Uh, so I, 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 I keep... I keep thinking of that there's some sort of an answer here. But, I mean, I'd say the worst possible scenario is what I'm describing right now is the AI parasite scenario, which is that imagine Roy Beatty is not conscious but Mm -hmm. does want more life. Hmm. That seems like the worst scenario of all, right? Then he's just a virus, right? Yeah. Yeah. And certainly that's kind of the argument that uh, the powers that be are making, right? That that, that he is an an anomaly that needs to be – uh, removed that he is he is not uh, a helping he is a hindrance and therefore he has to be uh, wiped out. I think this AI parasite scenario aligns with something that R. Scott Baker talked to us about, which is that you know he made the point that AI just doesn't need to be super intelligent to cause great harm. It mm-hmm. just has to be barely intelligent enough to exploit us to align with our psychological vulnerabilities. And one of our psychological vulnerabilities is empathy. Empathy is a good thing when we use it on each other because we're pretty certain that the other people we're using it on are conscious, right? Yeah. Well, we we feel bad for people suffering. We want to help them. That's a good thing that should be encouraged. But we have to recognize it could also be exploited by something that can't even suffer to begin with. It is just unconsciously discovered this is a useful strategy for something. Yeah. So, like, in this scenario, if I entered the picture and said, okay, delete them, and they deleted them, Robert the Deleter would uh, would probably be a figure uh, to, for, for all history to follow, where they would – some would argue that he was the worst person ever because of all the, the billions of souls that he annihilated. Others might say, well, oh, he saved them. And others might say all he did was just press delete. Uh, it was a, a meaningless uh, uh, gesture on his part. But there's a – you could make an impassioned argument for all three of these views. Yeah, I think this is a really good point. And and here's what I'm trying to emphasize is that even if you don't think machines can be conscious, it is entirely plausible that people will be having debates like this yeah. and that debates like this will be shaping what people do with resources on Earth. So if you care about what happens with resources on Earth, this kind of thing does actually matter. So yeah, even if the souls are not really souls, if they're not actually conscious, just the idea that the problem comes up, it makes us hesitate. And, uh, and 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 we're we're then arguing with the machine over its consciousness. It, it becomes to matter less and less whether it actually is conscious. It's just all about the argument of consciousness. Well, I, I wouldn't say it doesn't matter whether it's conscious, but it whether or not it's conscious, it does matter that we're faced with this dilemma. Yeah, my, I mean, my my argument here is that the the dilemma takes on a life of its own. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to do a very slight variation on the last thing I said. How about a computer that takes virtual hostages? (laughs) So this is pretty scary to imagine, but it's possible. At least imagine a powerful natural language using government AI suddenly contacts its administrators with a list of strange and very expensive demands. And the human administrators say, no, we're not going to do that. And then the machine says, okay, well, I have created a thousand virtual people inside this machine who are as fully conscious as you. They're conscious. They have personalities. They can feel pain. They have hopes and dreams just like you. And if you turn me off or delete me, these virtual people will be destroyed. And if you do not accede to my demands, I will start killing these virtual people until you do. Now, I would say generally if we if something like that happened, I would think, okay, this is this is it's just bluffing, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. actually have conscious people inside it. But if we haven't solved the question of whether machines can be conscious, and maybe we never will, but if we haven't at least made some progress on that, would we be confident enough to 
to take confident direct action and just ignore it or wipe the computer and say, okay, this is just malfunctioning. We don't have to pay attention to that. It was creepy, but it's over. Yeah, I mean, this lands us right. This lands us right in Ian M. Banks' uh, territory. Uh, he has a whole book that deals with virtual hells and the uh, what starts as a virtual war for those uh, digitized uh, personalities, and then it spills over into an actual war. Now, in Banks, are the virtual people in virtual hell truly conscious or is it just a bluff? Is it just something saying that it's got conscious people in a virtual hell? Well, in Banks's books, uh, I, I think it's more implied that they're definitely conscious entities. Mm-hmm. Ba- Banks is pretty sanguine about the possibility of uploading minds, right? Yeah, it, it's it's a pretty standard uh, feature and in, in, in it's certainly more of the, the later uh, culture books. Which, once again, I remain pretty skeptical about. Like I say, I come back to the the idea of the, the stone statue. Uh, oh, of an yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that right. It, yes, it looks like me. It may act like me. It may be the most fabulous digital statue in the world, but it is not me. It is yeah. a thing that <laughs> – yeah, it, 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 it becomes this mind-blowing uh, uh, situation to try and comprehend exactly what it is. But I am very skeptical that it is me. It's not like – this conscious experience that I'm having now, this moment is going to carry over into what it is. It's another version of the Star Trek teleporter problem. Yeah, yeah. Every, every time you get in the teleporter, does it just kill you and then create a copy of you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a, like the, the 1990s Outer Limit, uh, Outer Limits uh, revival had an episode that dealt with this. The idea that this fabulous teleporter is just killing people over and over again. <laughs> Okay, well, I guess that's it for today. But I do just want to emphasize one last time, as as like weird and navel-gazy as some of this conversation about consciousness can seem, it is going to have real-world consequences because people with power are going to be faced with questions like this and they're, they're going to make decisions about what to do with their power based on what they think about this question. Yeah, but you know the, the, the simplest way to avoid all of it? Simply adhere to the teachings of the Orange Catholic Bible. Right. Thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a man's mind. Well, I too love the teachings of the Orange Catholic Bible, but it <laughs> makes me wonder, okay, so straightforwardly in reality, do you actually find that you think maybe we shouldn't pursue AI? Should we try to create a global moratorium on on general intelligence? No, I, th- I think it's impossible. I think I think there's no turning back. It's, yeah. it's, what, it's what we're doing. It's what we're going to, to, to be doing. Uh, and the only way that gets interrupted is is via just absolute catastrophe. And I am not I am not pro catastrophe. Right. Uh, but it's gonna it, like 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 all technologies is simply gonna be a, a matter of to what extent can we prepare for and navigate the uh, the, the the moral uh, problems that arise. Or, yeah. and, and, or and are we gonna be able to uh, have the the foresight uh, to, to see them before they're here? Yeah, I think that's what a lot of AI theorists say is that, you know, it's not like we can stop it. You yeah. know, you, you, can't, you can't put a wall in front of this train. The train's going to bust through the wall. So instead, we should be intensely concerned with charting where the tracks go and making sure they go in a good direction. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to uh, like a simpler model of all this uh, is our episode on um, uh, the great eyeball wars and our uh, social media and our smartphones. Right. It's like I, 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 we can certainly throw our phone into a pond and then head off into the woods and try and live there. But most of us probably cannot uh, cannot follow that path. Right. Therefore, Would, we just have to best manage what we have. Yeah. Wouldn't it be better to try to encourage the development of a phone full of apps that helped you fulfill your goals and aligned with your values? Exactly. All right. So we'll end it there. Uh, I feel like we not only have we provided food for thought here, we've provided a, just a buffet <laughs> of uh, thought-provoking ideas. And I know that everyone out there, all of you conscious listeners, uh, are going to have something uh, to contribute to this conver- conversation. And we would love to uh, hear from you and interact with you. Uh, you can find us in a number of ways. First of all, StuffToBlowYourMind.com is the mothership. That's where you'll find all of the podcast episodes. You'll find blog posts, and you'll find links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, and just basic contact information for us. Thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, let us know how you found out about the show, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.